hot dogs are sandwiches. And you're listening to Weird as Fuck, a.k.a. Weird AF. You've either listened to an episode before or a stranger in black approached you out of nowhere and gave you instructions that you can't help but follow. Was it Jeff Goldblum? Might have been Jeff Goldblum. I'm your host, Ash, and I have a new segment to introduce this week. Right now, I'm calling it Whoops, but I'm open to name suggestions. Someone I know told me recently that they listened to episode 25, Stein vs. Stein, and let me know about halfway through that I started saying Mandela instead of Mandela, as in the Mandela effect. My bad. If you live in L.A. or have a penchant for keeping up with pre-1980s true crime's greatest hits, you may have heard that the Los Feliz Murder House is back on the market. I wanted to let it be known that that is the correct way to pronounce the name of the neighborhood. It's Los Feliz, the happy, not Las Files. If anyone insists that it's Las Files, they hate you and they're trying to make you look bad. I, on the other hand, am trying to make sure that you sound like you know what you're talking about. So, who are you going to trust here in this situation? So, the Los Feliz Murder House is for sale to the tune of $3.5 million. The current owners are about halfway through renovations and are asking for cash or hard money offers only. Interesting. Like, isn't that what we always want out of horror movies where a family moves into a creepy fixer-upper with a bloody history... Like, why don't they just move out? Here's them trying to move out. Okay, finally. Long suspected of supernatural haunts, the Los Feliz murder house was the scene of a pretty brutal murder-suicide, and it also went on to inspire season one of the FX show American Horror Story. Where? The Los Feliz neighborhood of L.A. located near Griffith Park. When? December 6, 1959. The chart topper? Mac the Knife by Bobby Darin got that classic 1950s bop sound, which I always find contrasts really wonderfully with murder. New York-born Dr. Harold Perelson took a ball-peen hammer to his wife Lillian the night of December 6th in their Spanish revival home. She was asleep in their bed when he struck her at 4.30 in the morning. Coroners later determined that she had asphyxiated on her own blood. Harold then ventured to Judy's room, their oldest child. She was 18. His aim wasn't as good as the first time, if you can call it that. She woke up screaming. He told her to be quiet and lay still, but Judy managed to get the fuck away and ran screaming out of the house and went door to door until neighbor Marshall Ross helped her call the police. Back at the house... Judy's got two younger siblings, 13-year-old Joel and 11-year-old Debbie. They wake up to Judy's screams, and Debbie sees her father standing in the doorway. He tells her, go back to bed, baby, this is a nightmare, before walking away, dripping blood on the floor. First of all, fuck that. That's a lifetime of therapy right there. Because it's 1959 and these things just don't happen, neighbor Marshall Ross, who helped Judy call the police, decides that he's just going to walk into the house. He finds Debbie and Joel waiting on the first floor before going upstairs where he runs into Harold. Harold's like, go home, don't bother me. Just 
super cash after killing his wife and attacking their daughter. Marshall Ross watched Harold walk into a bathroom and pull out bottles and boxes of pills, creating a cocktail of barbiturate um, and possibly codeine before lying down in Judy's bed. He was dead before the ambulance showed up. Police discovered a copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy on Harold's nightstand. It was open to Canto 1. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Talk about fucked up! Harold had previously been hospitalized for coronaries, but it came out after the murder-suicide that he had actually been hospitalized for suicide attempts. I read elsewhere that Lillian was on the verge of institutionalizing him, but I didn't find anything to back that up beyond, like, Reddit speculation, so take that as you will. But Harold was a successful doctor. He published papers on neurology. He was a professor at the USC School of Medicine. What happened? I mean, what always happens? Financial hardship. See, Harold was a successful doctor. He was an injection specialist, and he filed a patent on December 30th, 1938, for an attachment for hypodermic syringes, so you could inject drugs directly from a sealed glass capsule to reduce any risk of contamination or spillage. It's actually a pretty cool idea, in my opinion, from what I know about medical equipment pre-1950s. Edward Shustak also thought it was a good idea. Harold entered a verbal agreement with Edward, who would develop Harold's idea into a widespread medical standard um, that would make them both a lot of money, and then they would split the profits. Harold and Lillian invested $24,496 into the project. That's $263,021.17 in today's money. 7000 of that came from Lillian's personal savings, and that's about the equivalent to $75,000, which, like, damn, girl, you really put it on the line for this guy. Edward spent more than 11 years developing the syringe for sale, and he grifted the fuck out of the Perelsons. Harold filed a complaint on July 21st, 1952, claiming that Edward used a fake name to drop Harold's rights from the device, and a shady corporation, quote, masked the deception of fraud. Can't ever trust a corporation, bruh. Never, ever. Never, ever, ever. Harold sued for $100,000, which is close to a million in today's money. After two years, though, of, like, long, drawn-out sessions in court and then hella expensive legal fees... Harold was only awarded, like, $27,000. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at, but I get how that's disappointing when you're feeling like you've been double-crossed. And things only managed to, like, keep sucking from there. Um, Three years after that, Judy got into a car accident while driving her younger siblings. Um, I think she got a head injury. Um, Debbie had, like, a cut on her face um joel had like shock to his nervous system which is i think is what they just called like the trauma from impact in a car accident when you're in the car i don't know but um she was judy was 16 when she was driving and the other driver accused her of blowing through a red light harold took the driver to court since you know all the kids suffered non-life-threatening injuries um, and the court was like, you right, but only awarded him a fraction of what he sued for again. 
which could not have made him very happy. My family are on the merry-go-round again. Same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. Judy wrote that to an aunt in 1959 before the murder-suicide took place. Usually when everyone in the family is killed, it's called a family annihilation. If it's just a couple of the family members, it's a familicide. Perpetrators are typically men in their 50s and an average of seven years older than their spouse. Harold Perelson was 50, and he was also eight years older than Lillian. There's four types of logic, I guess you could call it, when it comes to family annihilation. Anomic, disappointed, self-righteous, and paranoid. The paranoid one speaks for itself. Um, Usually the paranoid killer kills their family to save them from a threat that they perceive to be worse than dying. Self-righteous is just like a big fuck you to the mother, like killing the family as like punishment for the mother, but then also blaming her for having to do that. The disappointed killer feels like the family isn't living up to his ideals of what the family should be like. So obviously, I'm so disappointed in you, I can't let you live type of shit. I think anomic killers, though, are probably the most common type of family annihilators. It's all about public image, who the world sees as this amazing father and provider. And like the family is just a status symbol. When that shit goes tits up, usually because of financial troubles, it's like a narcissistic injury. The familiar side becomes like a form of damage control, which is incredibly selfish and fucked up. I mean, they're all selfish and fucked up, but like that one's like, I don't know. They're all fucked up. You know what I mean? A year later, the house is sold at a probate auction to Lincoln Heights couple Emily and Julian Enriquez. What's weird is that they never moved in. They just, like, used the house for storage. And, like, it eventually fell into disrepair and, like, the neighbors hated it and were complaining because they thought that, like, oh, someone's going to, like, move in and renovate and blah, blah, blah. But, like, all of the pearls and stuff, I guess, was still in there. And they had, like, the Enriquez's had their own stuff in there. The lawn was crazy. And I also read that, like, transient people would squat there sometimes and, like, sex workers would bring clients there. And so neighbors, like, were pissed. When Emily and Julian died, uh, the house was inherited by their son, Rudy, in 1994. And he also never lived in the house. He just, like, would bring stuff there for storage. Over the years, he was approached by, like, hella potential buyers and internet true crime sleuths or whatever and journalists. But he never sold the house or seemed to really want to talk about the house. People would make pilgrimages, like, to the murder house, trying to, like, look inside or get inside. I read that there was even a group who had, like, a picnic in the backyard. Everything's covered in dust, just, like, frozen in time. There are pictures floating around the internet of, like, cans of SpaghettiOs and a Christmas tree with all the presents still underneath. There's been some debate about those, though, because SpaghettiOs weren't sold until 1965, and the Pearlstons were reportedly Jewish, so why would they have a Christmas tree? Although I do know that, like, There are some Jewish people who, like, do get a tree for fun, but obviously not, like, all Jewish people get a tree. Whatever. Okay, so 
there's been speculation that the house was briefly rented out after the murder-suicide, but the family who lived there, like, just dropped everything and left in a hurry because of something. I haven't been able to find any record of that, but, like, that is a common theory to explain why those objects are there. Like I mentioned in the last episode, trauma can be linked to hauntings, whether you went through something traumatic or something violent happened, like, at a location... Trespassers who have broken into the house have photographed orbs in the windows and reported hearing screams or moans. One woman said that she broke in and was bitten by a black widow spider and had to, like, leave and, like, go to the hospital and shit. That one, I'm just like, okay, but, like, black widow spiders are, are pretty common in, like, wood piles and stuff. So if a house is falling apart and decrepit, I can't imagine they wouldn't be there i don't know but there's also been sightings of a woman looking out from the windows of the house she'll stand there for a few moments before disappearing people said that they photographed her but when they developed the film or upload the files she's not in the frame which sounds convenient but also there are photographs of orbs so again take that how you will Rudy died in 2016, having never lived in, renovated, rented, or made plans to sell the house. In yet another probate sale, a couple threw down $2.289 million with the intention to renovate and move in. Then yesterday, May 17th, 2019, the article started coming out that the murder house is back on the market for cash only. I'm really curious about why they're selling. I mean, okay, like the skeptic would say that they probably ran into money issues during the reno, so they're trying to sell and get their money back for the renovations they started. But I can't help but wonder if glowing orbs and disembodied screams have anything to do with it. Because it would for me. I'd be like, girl, buy. First of all, I wouldn't even buy a haunted house. Okay, I don't know. I See, I keep going back and forth. I keep going back and forth on whether or not I would buy a haunted house and live there. I think if the ghosts were chill, I might. Like, if everything's good and they're just, like, hanging out and they're like, hey, what's your Wi-Fi password? Like, that, I think, would be okay. But if you're going to be, like, moving my shit and, like, screaming when I'm trying to sleep and, like, messing with my water temperature in the shower, like, that's not cool. You don't even pay rent, dude. Like, you can't treat me like this. I don't know. I keep going back and forth. If you like this podcast, subscribe, you know, maybe leave a review, let your friends and the spirits occupying your home know that they can listen to Weird AF wherever they listen to podcasts. I don't think I'm available via Ouija board yet, but, you know, soon, Agent Dave and I are working on it. You can, however, email me at askweirdaf at gmail.com with any on-brand weird experiences you'd like to share. Weird as Fuck is also on Instagram and Twitter at weirdafpodcast, so get on there and hit that follow button. Oh, God. Anyway, okay, thanks again for listening, Um, and I'll be back next week.